0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter one, as we read verses fifteen through twenty-four. Colossians chapter one, fifteen through twenty-four. This morning we have come to an end of this very brief series of studies in Colossians, and in fact we probably will return to it later in the year or early next year. It is just a spectacular epistle, and we certainly can't do it credit only just over three Sundays. The Apostle Paul is writing from Rome to the church at Colossae, and he's writing to encourage them... And in this latter half of chapter 1, he has one of the most sublime, lucid, comprehensive descriptions of Christ to be found anywhere in the New Testament. And so, verse 15 of chapter 1, he writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him... All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the body, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well-known contemporary author Malcolm Gladwell has written a series of best-selling books And he really is a fascinating writer. He studies the culture and the changes in culture. And in his book called Blink, he begins to advance the theory that when you come across a significant challenge in your life, Good decision-making is not always about having more and more and more information, but in fact, he makes the point that it's helpful to have four or five pieces of information, recognize the significance of the information you do have, and what are the implications of that information. And his book, Blink, is just a remarkable uh, piece of writing. It's informative. It's challenging. It really is extremely well done. And he begins the introduction by telling his readers of a statue that was offered to the J. Paul Getty Museum in California back in 1983. The museum was very impressed with the condition of the statue. They completed... Gosh, numerous tests on the statue itself. They hired several world-renowned experts in sculpture and art, and after a prolonged period, eventually paid just under $10 million for the statue. And when it first went on display, people were gathering in significant numbers, ooing and eyeing at the wonder of the statue, which was dated back to around the 6th century B.C. But problems began to emerge when experts and sculpture and artists from around the world would go to the museum to look at it. And a number of significant world-renowned experts said, we're not sure that this is authentic. And in his book, Gladwell makes the point that their concern happened within the first five or ten seconds of seeing the statue for the first time, instinctively. Intuitively, they looked at it and said, yes, but we're not sure. And the longer the statue was on display, the more investigations took place and the authenticity of the statue was called into question multiple times. The museum was also given a pile of paperwork to support the history and the background, and as they went through the documentation, they discovered that a postcode on one of the letters contained in the submission was a problem. The letter was dated 1956. The postcode didn't come into place till 1972. One of the bank accounts referenced on a letter dated 1955 wasn't open to 1963. And to this day, if you go and see the statue, you're given a catalogue, and at the bottom of the description, it says about 530 BC or modern forgery. Can you imagine? Some in the art world say, absolutely not. Some are saying, we're not so sure but its authenticity and credibility were called into question multiple times. And this morning, as we come to this latter half of Colossians chapter 2, we are we're about to encounter Christ as he actually is. Christ as he is portrayed, Christ as he impacts and transforms hearts and minds and souls. And the passage we are about to immerse ourselves in has been described as containing some of the most sublime thoughts, pious exhortation, affectionate admonition, depth of doctrine and animated fervor of style to be found anywhere in the New Testament, yet it can be read through in about 90 seconds. And in this passage, we will encounter the authentic Jesus. And as Paul writes, he begins to remind his readers in the church at, the, sorry, in writing to the Colossians, he is reminding them of the supremacy of Christ. And so he begins at verse 15, describing Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, this morning as we come to these verses, we have a significant advantage over the Colossians. And the advantage we have is this, that we have some 2,000 years of theological and biblical reflection and study. And for the Colossians, here in Asia Minor, in that small town in the Lycus Valley, Paul is writing to them to encourage them. And the best way he can encourage them is to lay out for them and enable them to encounter the authentic Jesus as he truly was and still is today. And so Paul lays out in unsurpassed grandeur and majesty the mighty energizing belief that we as Christians have And, of course, he focuses it on Christ himself. And that will be the focus, of course, of our communion service. And I couldn't think of a better passage in all of Colossians to show us this morning as we come to this communion table. But having said all of that, the question in our minds is, why does Paul focus on? on Christ in this way at the end of chapter 1. And he does that because Paul knows what we don't know. And Paul knows that there were in the church in Colossae disturbing tendencies beginning to emerge... This is known, of course, as Paul's friendly epistle, and he writes in warm and friendly tones, but he doesn't hesitate to address issues that, in the mind of the church at Colossae, are uninformed. He doesn't see them as willfully ignorant or difficult, but young Christians growing and developing and maturing in their faith with uninformed thoughts. And so he writes to them to challenge what some in the church were beginning to teach and what we now know as Gnosticism. So please bear with me as I be a little technical this morning, not too difficult by, not too technical rather, not by any manner of means, but Gnosticism was beginning to emerge in the church and this is what we mean when we talk of Gnosticism. It's a form of philosophical dualism which claimed that everything made of matter, timber, steel, soil, anything made of matter, was in fact evil. And only that which was spirit was good. Secondly, the Colossians believed that salvation was achieved through a true understanding of your own nature, which is revealed only to the initiated excuse me, I think I misspoke. I think I said the Colossians believed that, the Gnostics believed that. And the Colossians were saying, yeah, we're not so sure. Thirdly, Gnostics taught that Jesus was one among many less significant gods who were ignorant of and hostile to the one true God. And fourthly, Jesus was some kind of ghostly apparition, not a real person, and therefore did not suffer and die for the sins of the world. And so that was the teaching that was beginning to emerge by this group called the Gnostics. And they presented it in this sense. They would say, now, Epaphras, who founded the church here at Colossae, taught us of the love and grace of God. But we want to take you on from those basic instructions. We want to take you to a fresh and new form of teaching. We want to introduce you to a deeper understanding of the gospel. And that's how they were packaging it in a very attractive, winsome manner. And here is Paul hearing from Epaphras of all of this going on. And he writes to say, hold on. Let me explain to you exactly who Jesus was and is. And in these next few verses, that is just what he does. And he doesn't give them too much information. In fact, he gives them five or six pieces of information to focus on. Information that, in every sense, lies at the very heart of the gospel. And he begins to explain to them the implications of what he's about to tell them. And he encourages them to embrace it fully and seek to live it out in their lives day by day by day. And so he challenges the false Gnostic teachers. And in challenging them, he highlights for them the surpassing excellence of Christ as the Son of God, His supremacy and glory and preeminence as creator of the world. And thirdly, revealing Christ's sufficiency and supremacy in the redemption of humanity. And that's why he writes in the way he does. And so Paul, just like the art expert, says, wait a minute, what you're hearing here is not true. Let me enable you to focus on On who Christ is and all he has accomplished for us. And that's exactly why he begins verse 15 the way he does. And so he writes, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when you think of God, think of Christ. When you have an image of Him in your head, have Christ there. When you come to Him in prayer, that's who you're coming to. He and the Father are one, the exact image. We see it elsewhere in the New Testament. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews chapter 11, first two verses, He is the very essence of God Himself, And so he writes, he is the image of the invisible God, not one of lesser gods, but God himself, the firstborn over all creation. And even as I'm reading that, you may have said in your mind, now Richard, hold on, doesn't firstborn suggest that at some point Jesus was born and therefore he was created? And surely if he was created, he is not very God of very God, the Alpha and the Omega. And therefore let me explain. The term firstborn was used as a title of Honour, unique, different, above all others. In the book of Exodus, chapter 344, we we discover the people of Israel being described as God's firstborn. Not because they were the firstborn of all people, but as an honorary title. His beloved, His chosen, His cherished and nurtured children. That's the point going on here. In Psalm chapters uh, Psalm 89 verse 27, the Messiah is described as the firstborn. I will appoint him my firstborn. And so we see the term was used to give someone a special place, a unique position. The highest honor that could be bestowed upon anyone was called firstborn. And so all of that is in the background as Paul is writing, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then he adds, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so in this unprecedented, almighty, energizing power of God that was evident at creation. What we discover, of course, is that Father, Son, and Spirit together lay at the very heart of creation. And in that mighty, energizing, creative force, when God spoke and out of darkness exploded light, Christ was right there. There are two outstanding events in all of history that scripture focus on. The first was creation. When God spoke and it came to be. And the second was the redemption of God at Calvary. And that's why Paul continues to go on the way he does when he says not only did he create all things, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There it is again from among the dead so that in everything we might, excuse me, he might have the supremacy And here comes verse 19, where I want to spend most of our time this morning. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Nothing missing, nothing insufficient, nothing lacking. All his fullness dwells in him And so you have the preeminent role of Jesus in creation as God in all of his fullness dwell in him. And you may well be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying this morning. I think I understand what you're saying. But how does first century Gnosticism apply to me in 21st century Greenville? How do I apply that to my life today? It's been interesting as you've laid it out. I think I've understood it. I think I've grasped Gnosticism. And I think I have understood why Paul writes the way he does to this church in the first century. But what difference does it make to me in the 21st century? Well, allow me to explain, if I may. There are two classical errors that we often fall into when we think of the gospel. And the first is this. And allow me to give you a category called the gospel minus. And when I'm in conversation with folks, and I've mentioned this to you before, that occasionally someone will say to me, Richard, I know you're a pastor, and I know that you hold very deep convictions of your faith, but for me, Jesus was a supreme teacher. He was the kind of person who lived an exemplary life. The kind of person that should be an example to all of us. Someone whom we could model our life upon. And when I think of Jesus, that's exactly how I think of him. And that is a gospel minus. And by that I mean this. It's a gospel minus his deity minus the fact that He is the Son of God. Minus the fact that He is the creator of the world. Minus the fact that He went to Calvary to accomplish fully and sufficiency our salvation. It's a gospel minus the fact that He died in order to present the perfect sacrifice for our sins and then to cleanse us and change us and transform us. It's a gospel minus because the individual has been able to pick and choose parts they like and minimize and dismiss parts they don't like. It's a gospel minus. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians and also saying to us, there is no such thing as a gospel minus, because if it's a gospel minus, it's not a gospel at all. You cannot take Calvary out of the gospel. You cannot take the propitiatory sacrifice out of the gospel. You cannot take his creation out of the gospel and reduce him simply to a teacher or an example. It's not the gospel at all. It's a gospel minus. And so Paul is writing not just to the first century, but to us in the 21st century to to say He is so much more than simply a good man, so much more than an outstanding teacher, so much more than an example of how to live. He is a Savior. He came into this world in order to redeem us and draw us into a relationship with Himself, to forgive us and transform us. That's why it's applicable to us today. It's a gospel in all of its forms fullness because he is all sufficient as a savior and if one of our problems is that we have a gospel minus on the other extreme we have a gospel plus and the gospel plus manifests itself in this way i fully agree that jesus was a good teacher An example of how to live. Exemplary in his lifestyle. If only I was like him, but I am trying my best. I raise my children the best way I possibly can. I seek to live by the Sermon on the Mount. The golden standard, if you like, is love your neighbor as yourself. And I do that both in my neighborhood and at my work and in my family. I live a reasonably good and decent life. That's a gospel plus how I live. A gospel plus what I do. A gospel including the things I focus on. But no mention of a need of a Savior. No mention of a need of forgiveness. No focus on the sin that we know lives within each of us. It's a gospel plus my efforts. A gospel plus my good work. A gospel plus how I live. And Paul is reminding the Colossians and ourselves that we don't need a gospel minus or a gospel plus. Our job is to focus on the gospel and notice exactly what he says, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. To present you holy in his sight. Why is he saying physical body? He's making the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary clear. Not some ghostly apparition. But God himself, the creator of all things. Coming into our world to offer the perfect sacrifice. And this morning as we gather round this table. That's exactly what we will do. We will remind ourselves of his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and we come overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving because at this table we encounter Christ as he actually is saviour and redeemer, not only of the world, but for our souls as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder on this Communion Sunday that Christ is preeminent at Calvary. His all-sufficient death enables us to be cleansed and forgiven and to know you and walk with you each day. And for all of this we give you thanks. Father, thank you for your love that sent Christ into our world to forgive us that we might know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.